Hi everyone, and welcome to the Val Cafe. My name is Brian Hosler, founder of Strong Roots Consulting based in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, which is on Treaty 6 territory and the traditional homeland of the Métis. I'm joined as always by my co-host. Hi everyone, I'm Carolyn Kamen, an independent evaluation consultant working out of Vancouver, BC, coming to you from unceded Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations territory. This podcast is an informal chat on evaluation topics, the kind you might overhear at your favorite coffee shop, if your favorite coffee shop were frequented by evaluators. This podcast is for everyone, expert or novice, long-time practitioner, or just starting in the field. Even if you don't identify as an evaluator, as long as you have an interest in evaluation, this podcast is for you. Hello, listeners. This week, I'm so happy to say that we have another special guest with us, Dr. Rita Fierro. Um, and I just want to tell you a little bit about Rita, who I only got to meet, I think, just a few months ago. Um, so Rita is, and I'm reading off her website uh, right now, she's an intellectual artist who skillfully combines creative, innovative, and analytical thinking by bridging groups, networks, and arenas that may seem far apart, art and facilitation, healing and research. Um, and so Rita uh, is a a facilitator. She's been facilitating um, since she was 15. She's been an evaluator for the last 15 years, conducting culturally competent research and evaluation in multiple sectors with a focus on vulnerable populations and social justice. She has a book uh, that's forthcoming uh, called Give Me Back My Child, How the USA System Kidnaps Children, uh, speaking out on the um, the child welfare, the child industrial complex, or the welfare part is debatable. Um, as she's an artist, uh, she is a Reiki practitioner, um, and, and a lot of her work focuses on, um, healing and transformation and being, uh, trauma informed. She's got a blog post that is going to be coming out shortly that she wrote after this training that, um, she helped co-lead a few weeks ago on participatory leadership and evaluation. Um, from which she has been developing and refining her practice model. And then the title of the blog post is Social Change is a Fractal Thing. Uh, and, and Rita, we would love to hear more about how social change is a fractal thing. Um, so in our workshop, we really wove together kind of three, three threads of practice. So Chris is like a master and expert around uh, fac facilitation in the context of great complexity um, and has worked a lot with indigenous populations around issues of reconciliation. Uh, Dominica McBride is uh, an absolute expert in culturally responsive evaluation and has been at the table with several other people in our evaluation community to have evaluation be more responsive to a power analysis, to the community, the culture, and the context in which we're operating. And I've uh, been on this journey of weaving together uh, the organizational development side of facilitation, evaluation, and on a healing journey of my own. Basically, in the workshop, what we did was we came together being completely transparent with our participants that we were also learning because we were learning what was the kind of core point of contact of our three practices. Um, and we knew that we were in alignment in terms of ethics and values and practices, but we, didn't, we weren't really clear what our core was. And what we realized by the end of the training was that our core is that whatever we do, like whatever technique or skill or 
bell and whistle we use, our common intention is always building beloved community. Mm. That's wonderful. So, so building beloved community, how did that come about in the train? Like how, was that something that you came to very soon or was that something that came about toward the end? It was, it came about like kind of like the night before the training while we were prepping and we were asking each other, what was the spiritual drive of the work? Right. So it turns out that each of us have a very strong spiritual center Um, But we don't always talk about it because, of course, the professional spaces that we typically create uh, don't really have the space to bring in the spiritual aspects of ourselves. Um, And so we when we talked about like what was our spiritual foundation, what we got present to is that although we have different each of us has different spiritual practices and different kind of religious practices what was at our core was this profound belief that we were instruments of generating deeper, more real, more human communities so that our world can foster justice and equity and humanity. And the term beloved community comes from um, Martha Luther King, um, I have one of his quotes here, which I really like because I think it it works. It speaks really well to the data geeks that we are. <laughs> so Martha Luther King says, "Our goal is to create a beloved community, and this will require a qualitative change in our souls, as well as a quantitative change in our lives." Hmm. <laughs> and of course, I love it because it's, <laughs> like, mixed methods is what I do. So I was like, "Oh my god." <laughs> <laughs> On quantitative and qualitative, this is amazing. Um, I've been practicing like mixed methods research for like 25 years, right? So, um, and why, like, why does beloved community matter? Because, like, we have built, like, if we look at where we are at this stage, we're in a space of tremendous uncertainty, right? We're in a space where People love to use the word divisive ever since like the last president got elected, right? So it's like we're there's so much device, divisiveness and there's so much uncertainty and things are changing faster and faster and our systems are being like are unsustainable and you know some say he's undermining them, but what's also true is that our systems are personally I think many of our systems are systems are unsustainable. And so they need to be rethought anyway. My like my core attention is like, how do we build a stronger community, be it outside of the organization or inside of the organization, so that we can lead with integrity, we can create spaces where people can be fully human and relaxed together, mm-hmm. we can build our capacity to have hard conversations, and we can measure it all at the same time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm really interested in knowing more about um, how tra- how you bring that trauma focus into your work. I, that's something I'm hearing. I think when I was at AEA last year, I saw a lot of people talking about trauma-informed practice and evaluation. I think that's the first time I'd seen that um, being uh, in, in sort of open conversation. Uh, and I think you've been working in this area for quite some time. Can you talk more about how that focus comes into your work? My attention to trauma came from an inductive focus, not a deductive one. So for the past 20 years, I've been sitting with mothers in Philadelphia who lost their children to foster care 
and I've been listening to their life experiences. And I sat with six mothers, which are the ones that I focus on in my book. I've spoken to many more over the years, about 100 over the years. But the six that I focus on in the book, I've spoken to like five to 30 times each. I've lost count now. And in the book, each chapter highlights one story of one mother so that you can walk through their journey of one system. So the different systems that we look are at are, that I look at, are the foster care system, the child welfare system, housing, legal system, school to prison pipeline, mental health. And through the story of each mother, you really get to step into their shoes and get how they navigated one system. And by the end of the book, you get how all these systems are intertwined. Mm. So I've been sitting with these stories for 20 years, and my commitment was that their voices be heard as close to their original voice as possible. Like I knew I was mediating. I knew it was extremely pragmatic that I, white women, was listening to the stories of mothers of color and trying to write about it. And so my commitment all along the way has been I wanted their voices to be heard as close to the way they would tell their story as possible. And to do that, like I have to step back and be able to find the kernel, like the common core that will have the reader follow the story because I wrote it for a mainstream audience. So I didn't want this to be a data geek book. I wanted it to be like a book that anyone could read. So anyone could get to know the mothers the way I knew them. And they're phenomenal human beings, right? And just like getting to know them as these phenomenal human beings that are overcoming credible obstacles in their life. Um, so when I started like after years, I think it was like after kind of 12 years of sitting with these stories and trying to make meeting and try to write, write them up and getting feedback from writing groups and like trying to understand how to write it. What I finally realized is that like, Trauma was the common core. So basically, trauma is the trap that gets, in particular, poor people of color into the system. And once they get in one system, they're just recycled. So even if they exit one system, they'll end up in another system, and then in another and another. Hmm. And so my passion has become, okay, Trauma-informed approaches, it's cool. It's great that we're talking about trauma and we're talking about, like, trauma repeats itself over and over again, right? The trauma repeats itself because it gives us an opportunity to heal itself. That's what happens in our personal healing and that's what happens in organizations. But So the trauma repeats itself over and over again. And my commitment is how do we transform the trauma so it stops repeating itself? Mm-hmm. And most people see that as something you do in a therapist's office. And it's cool if you do it for yourself in a therapist's office, but we know that systems are traumatizing. So what are we going to do at the systems level? And Sandy Bloom's work speaks to the organizational level, but there's a higher level even. Mm -hmm. So we can't like traumatize people through the school to prison pipeline millions at a time and then say to each of them, go to a therapist's office to get healed. That doesn't work. Mm -hmm. So my commitment has become how do we transform trauma at higher levels? Mm -hmm. And with group and the core of that is how do we get groups to transform trauma 
so that we can transform the social trauma in groups, we can stop repeating the same wounds over and over again. And then from there, we can scale it up. So if trauma is fractal, then change and healing are fractal too. Yes. Yes. And by and most people know the fractal language from Adrian Brand Brown's work, uh, Emergent Strategy. And uh, I was so excited when she published that book. I was like, great, I'm not going to be the first person talking about fractal. But it's all sitting next to me is- right now, I'm so excited. It's such a good book. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So all our work is fractal. Like art of hosting practices start on fractal work. Can you, for our, for our listeners who, who might not um, be as, as versed in that concept, can you give us your explanation of, of what it means for things to be fractal? Yeah. So what it means for things to be fractal is that there are patterns that you see at different levels in the same context. So if you look at how, and the the example that's typically used is a fiddlehead fern, that is a spiral made of spirals, made of spirals, made of spirals, right? So the spiral pattern is the same, but it's repeated at a lot of different levels. So if you think about trauma, the way trauma repeats itself individually and gets kind of re-triggered and poked and we react, like that happens in families, which are our first group, right? It happens on teams. It happens with our clients. It happens within our organizations. It happens within our communities. It happens within our single systems. It happens within the system as a whole. And what it means that it's fractal, it also means that whatever level you intervene at, you will be able to make a shift. Mm. And so when we teach people to be realistic and give up their dreams, we're ignoring the fact that actually when you, like when you do your personal healing work, there is an impact that you have on the larger spheres because everyone you interact with gets affected by your shift. Mm-hmm. And if we fill our organizations with people who have done that healing work, we can bring that healing work to our organizations. We can bring that healing work to our systems. Um, and we can also, I think it's also that it, we can work sort of from that, from that inside out and also that outside in um, at the same time. Yes. Um, and I think it's that multi-prong approach that's really important, which is an integral part of how I work. So like my intention has to be clear for me to work well with a client. So if my intention is to make money and screw the impact, that is what I'm going to propagate. Yeah, it's like waves. Mm. It's like wherever your center is, that's what you propagate. So if I'm working with my clients from a fear of losing a contract, like that's what I'm going to propagate is more fear. And if I'm standing in the intention of being a healing presence that contributes to community, then that is what I will propagate. And if I can create a group, a team that is united with me in that intention, then the way we propagate is bigger. And if we work with a client and that intention is is solid, then we can propagate together at the organizational level. And then if the organization does it in a solid way, then we can do it at a we can do it at a systems level, and then if we do it at a systems level, it can propagate societally. So I think what people often get wrong is that people get very overwhelmed. People who govern or like 
our leadership and organizations get very overwhelmed by what many people want because we think the answer is in the doing. And the answer is not in the doing. The answer is how you're building relationships and what kind of community you're building that can propagate who you are in a bigger way. Mm-hmm. And that's how social change happens. It's when, you know, when Carolyn, you and I, who are building like a collegial relationship, get to the point where we can call each other to the carpet on the hard conversations. When we get to the other side of the hard conversation, you and I together can do a million more things than we can do alone. Mm-hmm. It does remind me of some of the work I've seen recently around truth and reconciliation here in, in Saskatoon and more broadly. And I think there's a recognition there are some, you know, instrumental actions and recognitions and acknowledgments that that can and should be taking place, but it's also an intensely personal journey for, for pretty much everyone in this country in terms of what does reconciliation with um, our Indigenous uh, siblings mean and how do we actually, yeah, how do we create the healing not just for, for you know, those communities or create a better Canada, it's how do we have that healing process happening for ourselves first. One thing I have struggled with as a consultant in the past doing evaluation work has been um, coming into an organization and absorbing, sort of taking on how that organization um, feels already, Um, whether that's sort of embodied in an an individual or or is kind of felt across the organization. Like if I come in and they're feeling very anxious and tense, I I realize and I've sort of, especially when I was... um, new to consulting, I would absorb those feelings and like they would become part of me and then they would become part of the evaluation. I, I would look back and be like, yeah, I was very tense and very anxious and that showed up in the design it showed up in the analysis. It showed up in the work. And I thought mm-hmm. at first like, oh shoot, I need to like keep more separation so that I'm not taking in those feelings and keep sort of more of an analytical distance from it. And the realization I've been coming to more recently is it is important for me to connect with the, those emotional realities of the organizations I'm working in, but that connection becomes an opportunity for transformation. It should be, I shouldn't be sort of flooded and overwhelmed by those feelings. Um, but how can I sort of recognize that I have those feelings? See like, aha, interesting data. This is data about what's <laughs> happening and, and the environment. How might that start showing up in the way we do the evaluation? And then how can the evaluation be an opportunity to open up conversations about some of those deeper things that then could translate back to the organization itself? So the evaluation becomes like a fractal, a, a spiral within a spiral within the organization. Mm. Um, and is that is that the kind of thing that you're talking about, Rita? Yeah. And so basically then the evaluation becomes an opportunity for social change, right? Which is what our practices do. Um, Also, I want to add, so what it takes to become in the midst of, of like neurotic nervous energy is, is the work because you as Carolyn get to again, propagate whoever you're being in your work. And so if you can be a presence of grounding and steadiness, then people, then you can become the anchor of the people around you. And part of this is very, a lot of this is nonverbal. Like I don't generally give a client like all these explanations of what I'm doing, but I often can get feedback of like, 
wow, you're such a calming presence in our midst, right? Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's a shakeup energy, which is also intentional of like, I get it. You were shaking up what was under the surface and no one had the like courage to say. So sometimes it's not always calming. Sometimes it's where the group needs to go. And sometimes the group needs to go like to where the pain is, to where the uncertainty is, to where the hard conversation is. And so depending on the agreements you have with the client and what the group is going through, it may be one or the other. But it's being really extremely present to like our personal power in the world and how we leverage it, which, by the way, is what leadership development is, right? The other one I've heard is um, infectious enthusiasm. <laughs> Just coming yeah. in and caring and being the data geek and being excited about the the program and the project in a way that people are like, oh, yeah, we're doing something cool here. Actually, we can get excited <laughs> about this. Um, I think that's another really powerful, valuable thing that, that as evaluators, we are wonderfully positioned to bring. Yeah. And bringing that enthusiasm in a way that we can connect it with what organizations are really out to accomplish. I think that's it, you know, Mm -hmm. but sometimes we can get carried away with our own data geek brains and just kind of go off on tangents and, and lose the listener right? Which is a communication thing. But if I'm fully in the world of my client and I'm fully like, I'm like their biggest ally for them to accomplish what they want to accomplish in the world, then I'm going to show up differently. And so then my my geek enthusiasm is that, oh my God, like look at all the ways that we can collect information to have you document the impact you're already having. And look at all the ways that we can actually have you um, have more impact. And one of the things I often tell my clients is like, I want to know, I often ask this in a first meeting, which is uh, always is off-putting to some people. (laughs) But I always say like at the end of a day where you've worked 14 to 16 hours and you're laying in bed and you're asking yourself, is it all worth it? What are the questions you ask then? Mm. Yeah, because nonprofits are full of people who are really one step from burnout, who are working their patooties off, and just really they do want to be certain that they're making a difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. I like that point you're raising about it's almost that like we're being like fully empathetic. We're kind of fully picking up on energy or the or the. Um, maybe the drive that they have and maybe they've lost sight of that even or just kind of it's buried down a little bit but we can kind of fully affirm that and say like hey yeah this is this is a great organization doing great things or you've got a you have you have a a worthy cause and uh, let's let's kick it up to the next level yeah and so what i'm learning about my practice is that stepping it up to the next level is all about being an in integrity And integrity doesn't mean being perfect. It just means trying to abide by your principles and values as much internally as you're projecting externally. And I think our helping organizations are laden with fixing people principles. And like I go from the principle that every human being is full, perfect and complete and no one needs to be fixed. And there's always space to grow. 
So I'm really curious to work, like I work best with organizations who know that, you know, integrity is something we strive for, right? And so who already have a practice of looking, okay, where are the ways in which I live by my value system? And where are the ways that I don't? And how can I realign the ways that I don't and grow? So I work best with organizations who already are clear about where like that integrity is important. Like they already know that part of scaling up your social impact is being an integrity and are just willing to look for new places where they can up their game internally. So then they can have that impact externally. Mm, I think that's such an important point and, and one I'd love to hear more from you about, because I mean, what we're describing right now is not the traditional paradigm of evaluation. I think it's becoming the new paradigm of evaluation, but it's it's not necessarily what people are are thinking about or asking for or looking for when they're seeking out consultants. And I know they're sort of like you can't wait around for like only perfect clients because they they don't exist and no one no one has to <laughs> meet some sort of 100% finished ideal and if we did that would be very boring. Nice. Um mm-hmm. but there is that sort of balance of like you know where who are the people I can work with where I'm actually going to be useful, where we actually do fit together? And where is it sort of like, no, that's probably not the right place to focus. Like, how do you, how do you make that determination in, in your work? What do you look for? So I think it keeps on changing. The first thing I want to say is that, no, it's not the way typical evaluators work. And I just want to say like one thing about how I got there, if it works for you, and then say like what I look for. Um, So how I got there is that as my early years as an evaluation consultant, I got really frustrated with how many reports ended up on people's shelves, but weren't actually put in practice. And for some interesting reason, like this must have been the way I needed to go because from the first year that I became an independent consultant, I had a dear friend who was also an independent consultant and was an organizational development specialist. So like the whole, um, I've been in business for like full time for myself for 11 years now. And these, all these 11 years, I've been surrounded by organizational development consultants. And the blind spot that I had as an evaluator who um, this colleague of mine, who I'm really grateful for, uh, spotted in me early on, she said, well, maybe they don't know how to apply your recommendation. Like, it sounds like you think organizational change is easy. Hmm. It's kind of not. And I just like that has always stayed in my head. And so these days I only work with organizational development consultants side by side. Because when things come up in the evaluation, I do all stakeholder engaged consensus building evaluation models. So I engage deeply with a variety of stakeholders so that they can participate with the, in the evaluation as much as possible and that the measures reflect their priorities. And um, when we engage in those consensus building processes, we'll often see places where the leader needs to grow and is resistant to growing, right? Or places where the leadership team needs to grow and is resistant to growing, or places where clients need to. So basically consensus building models bring to the surface what's unresolved. And so when those things are brought to the surface, you need an OD person in the room 
who can like look at an organizational level and help you process how whatever the blind spot is, is affecting the organization. Because otherwise you get into personal hearing and therapy work, which is not why we're there. Mm -hmm. Right. Or what I hear a lot of evaluators doing is just getting frustrated that the leader is not being a leader and just go and grump and have a glass of wine with their friends. (laughs) But that doesn't shift the organization either. Mm -hmm. Right. I have had the opportunity to work on a project with an organizational development person, and it was incredible. It was really enlightening. It it was an opportunity for me to see how our work was different, because I knew it was, but I I couldn't quite have described exactly how before, I think, because I I hadn't worked closely with organizational development folks, but also to see how powerfully complementary it was and to think like, yeah, I would not have wanted to do this evaluation without there being that that aspect to it as well, because it just made the whole the whole work much more possible. Yeah. And also organizational development consultants, like organizational development one-on-one, 101 is that no organization will grow beyond where the leader is willing to go. So the way you find out is to have like really deep, meaningful and hard conversations with the leaders early on. I'm not saying I do this well. I think it's an area where I'm growing too. And I'm growing thanks to the knowledge of my organizational development colleagues who are teaching me how to be kind of bolder in those earlier on conversations to see, okay, what depth are you willing to go at? Like, are you are you ready to swim in nine feet water with me? Do we have the trust that we'll have you swim in nine feet water with me? Or do you want to stay at three feet for this particular project? Because you don't quite trust me yet. Because there also has to be like a really profound relationship of trust. I think I'm I'm still learning there, but I think one of the question one of the things that I've gotten present to kind of recently uh, is I want to start asking more questions to leaders about what practices do they have in their lives that have them see whether their integrity or not, and where their integrity is out. Like I want to start asking those questions. I don't know how they're going to go yet. This is fairly new. It's sort of like when I hire someone for my firm, I ask them if they have self-care and healing practices. It's one of the questions I ask when I interview someone uh, because I I can't afford to hire someone who's going to, like, who doesn't have the tools to process their own pain if they get triggered. Um So it's sort of like doing that at the organizational level means having a conversation with a leader like, so how do you seek for ways your organization is out of integrity and what there is to put in? And like, do you have practices around that? Mm -hmm. And I think in the spirit of, um, oh gosh, you know, there was something, you said it to me, read it. And I think it was like a conversation we had um, maybe a couple months ago. um, Just this phrase that is sort of hung in my head of, um, you can't give what you don't have. Yeah. Um, which I, is again, speaking to that fractal social change model, but I'm also thinking, um, about, um, you know, if as evaluators, we are working in organizations where leadership is so important and we're working so closely with leaders, um, we also need to think of ourselves as leaders and we need to think of our own leadership development as well. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something that's been a big part of, I'm in that, uh, the SFU, um, Simon Fraser university certificate on evaluation for social change and transformational learning, which I'm going to continue to plug because I think it's amazing. <laughs> 
And the tagline of that course, this is uh, the course by um, Kim Vanderwerd and Billy Joe Rogers of Reciprocal Consulting. The tagline for that course is leaders as evaluators and evaluators as leaders. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole course within it that that is focused on on leadership development and, and doing that work ourselves so that we can grow as leaders and also work with leaders. Yes. And so I'm really happy to hear you say that, Carolyn, because I've been on my own journey because having done a lot of prep the way you have on participatory leadership, what I've noticed is that the downside of participatory leadership is um, sometimes there are people who want to do collaborative leadership all the time, and then they take an hour to decide where we're going to go for lunch. (laughs) Right. And then there are other people who do the dictatorship stuff and alienate everybody else. And what I'm holding, what I've been holding myself to, um, like in the past three years that I've been in focusing on my leadership development, because I've also been in a year long certificate program. Um, so I want to do collaborative leadership when we have to choose the direction we're going in. And if we have to choose where to go for lunch, I'm just going to tell one person to choose. Like, look for what dietary preferences are, but please, you choose. Like, I don't have to make that choice. And I think leadership at its best is um, directive individual leadership in simple decisions and collaborative leadership or participatory leadership in complex decisions. Yeah, I think it's a really important leadership skill is, first of all, to not lock yourself into one thinking, I'm this kind of leader, but to recognize that there are different kinds of leadership and to have the ability to to move between styles and the skill of discernment of knowing what style is appropriate for a given situation and being able to shift. Yes. And it's also very gendered. Like I've watched a lot of uh, of course, genders more than women and men, but I've watched a lot of women do really bad collaborative leadership just because they want everybody to be happy. And I've watched men do a lot of directive leadership just to move fast. And they're both detrimental. And so part of what I like, what I love doing with organizations is building their capacity to hold that balance so at the center is the work, not our personal preferences. Mm-hmm. Making a decision based on 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 context and and need and not comfort zone. Yes, yes. Which is, I mean, a lot of what we're trying to get people to do with evaluation as well, in terms of like, don't just run your program this way because it's the thing that feels easiest. It's the thing that comes most naturally. Um, I, a lot of programs are run. You know, decisions are made based on well, this is what we know how to do, so that's how we designed our program to run. Um, and no evaluative evidence in the world can necessarily shift that if people aren't willing to say, let's put the purpose of the change ahead of what feels most comfortable. Yes. And so I've been in the um, team management and leadership program for two years with Landmark Education. And, um, and that's basically my training. It's like, are you acting from where you're comfortable of what you're scared of? Or are you acting inside of the commitment of what you want to bring in the world? Because the first doesn't really matter. Your feelings are going to be gone in 30 seconds. So I don't know if you heard, there's that new study on like 
emotions don't actually last. I think maybe not 30. I think it's 90. Like that each emotion in and of itself without a story lasts no more than 90 seconds. Oh, I'm going to remember that the next time I get stuck in emotion. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And we can have them. I mean, I'm huge, passionate, fiery Southern Italian woman. Like I got emotions, believe me, a lot of them. (laughs) But like, am I going to drive my organization from you know, feeling dismissed or feeling feeling uh, devalued or feeling stepped on or feeling rejected, which are like all the places where I go when a conversation isn't particularly present. Or am I going to stand in what I'm creating and say, okay, I feel like crap right now and uh, I'm still showing up for the work because uh, who I am in the world is bigger than my moment of self-doubt. Yeah, and I like how you tie that into like, or the, the emotion doesn't last in the absence of, of stories. Um, and I think we see that and I've, I'm working with one client recently where it's, we could tell there's something underneath the surface and we kind of figured out what that was eventually. But I think you're right. It was, it was a, a dialogue. There was kind of a story happening um, with, with a strong basis in reality for sure. But I think it was something that was being, carried on and that was leading to kind of ripples all throughout the kind of the interactions um, with us as a consultants interactions with each other that we had to say, okay, what's, what's happening here and, and what, what does this mean moving forward for the organization? Mm. Yeah. That's another way that sort of evaluation can be about surfacing, illuminating. What are this, what's the story that we're telling ourselves Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, how do we shift that narrative where, where it needs to be shifted and, and tell new stories sometimes. Yeah. And what's the story we right. want to tell and where's the gap between where we are and where we want to go. Mm-hmm. So the example I always use are of kind of cobbler's son with no shoes are organizations that like have all these lofty social justice goals and work on the outside but then have their internal people like working 60 or 70 hour weeks on salary, right? Um, Where people are stretched to take care of their families and continue the work or feeling stepped on because the salary ranges are inequitable. Like how inside of what you were saying before, right? We can't give what we don't have, um, which my friend Juanita reminds me all the time. Um, who is the organizational development specialist I work these days most frequently with, Quanita Roberson, who's a really skilled um, woman, uh, a healer and organizational development specialist. So like inside of we can't give what we don't have, if internally we're treating our people horribly, how can we bring social justice anywhere? And I think that's part of what's so problematic about all the trauma-informed language is that if you don't align your organization internally to transform trauma and be trauma-informed, you can't do it externally. And unfortunately, the language has been watered down a lot because like, there are people who are taking you know, two-hour webinars and calling themselves trauma-informed. Mm. But if you look at Sandy Bloom's sanctuary model, Like in the sanctuary model, there's a deep organizational practice about how to, in the moment of trigger, how do you not repeat the trauma? How do you not reenact the trauma 
and I don't know if she uses the term transform it, but you basically transform it by not reenacting it, but instead just basically pausing the work and processing the trigger. And unfortunately, our, our work, our world is functioning at such a high speed that most people don't want to pause. And we think we're going faster, but we're actually going slower. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're going so mm -hmm. fast, we're going slowly and so getting in our own way. Yeah, so the African saying, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Mm -hmm. That. Mm -hmm. I want to um, pivot just a little bit. Uh, something that, that I had a thought about earlier in the conversation Um around trauma. And I think we've talked about um, trauma happening in the world and, and how we can, what it might look like to do evaluation in a trauma informed way. I also think this conversation has a lot of really wonderful uh, parallels and, and reverberations with the conversation we had with um, Dr. Nora Murphy Johnson um, in our uh, previous episode around evaluating from the heart. So I definitely encourage any listeners to also go back and listen to, I feel, I feel like these two, two episodes together are going to be a really lovely, um, maybe even the start of a longer conversation. I hope we get to have more conversations along these lines, but there was something that I feel like hasn't come up yet in the conversation around trauma. We've even talked about how we bring our own trauma into our situations, but um, the vicarious trauma mm -hmm. in evaluation work. Uh, so vicarious trauma for our listeners is, and it's something that's often talked about in people who work as uh, emergency responders, uh, or people who work in frontline um, crisis situations, but it's where you are, when you're around the trauma of other people, uh, it, that in and of itself can be a traumatizing experience. And I wonder do we think that vicarious trauma is something that comes up in evaluation work? Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think that's what set me on this journey. So um, I didn't mention that the reason I started collecting the stories of mothers who lost their children to foster care was because I was evaluating a project for mothers who lost their children to foster care. And it was funded by the Department of Labor so the assumption was just get these screwed up women jobs and everything will work out. Uh, needless to say, that assumption turned out to be false. And the only reason why I've been like studying this still like 20 years later is because in that first evaluation, I was already fierce about mixed methods. So I had focus groups with, with the groups of women every week. And it was my first evaluation report. So <laughs> I didn't know, I didn't quite know how to, I knew that mixed methods was the way to go, but I didn't really know how to weave the methods together. And so the, the quant, basically my supervisor told me to take out all the focus groups because it was, um, it was, it was too critical of the system. And we had partners, and so we didn't want to be that critical of the of our partners. Mm. So it brought up all political issues, and and I, it was mainly I realized that the experiences they told me about in the focus groups was not reflected in this evaluation report at all. So I sat with that conflict, and then my dissertation became the qualitative counterpart, and. 
I did not know I was a sexual trauma survivor before that work. And after doing deep dive interviews with several mothers and finding out that each and every one of them was, were sexual trauma survivors, I got triggered in the transcription process. So while I was transcribing an interview, I got triggered to the point where I literally like I couldn't move. I was I started shaking at my desk and couldn't move, couldn't do anything. And I just had never had that type of body reaction. And because I had trained myself as an evaluator to, you know, just, you know, keep plugging away, right? <laughs> Ignore the feelings, just keep plugging away. I made it worse and worse because I kept typing. And uh, that's what set me on my healing journey. Like I had to, and I know for a lot of people, it's really confusing that I'm an evaluator talking about healing, but I had to because I couldn't have completed the work without like upping my, my own healing practices big time, which meant like therapy, energy work, massage, acupuncture, like all the above, right? So absolutely vicarious head trauma happens during evaluation. I, yeah. When I asked that question, I think I, I knew my own answer in my head of like, oh, heck yes, this is definitely yeah. something. Um, Same for me. And, and thank you for sharing uh, your story, Rita. Um, I think I've had experiences as well of working on projects. Sometimes it was the content of what I was exposed to. Sometimes it was the feeling of helplessness around, hey, something really important is happening. People's lives are at stake, people's health and well-being are at stake, and I'm not in a position to do anything mm -hmm. about it. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, mm -hmm. when you think about the nature of the work that we do, the places we're working, I mean, evaluation work takes us to places where, um, you know, socially, societally, we're, we're at our worst where, you know, the, we don't, we, the interventions and policies that are developed are based around um, some of the most uh, profound inequities and oppressions and, and violence in people's lives. And mm -hmm. we're part of that, but I don't know that I really hear, I don't know. I, I've never heard anyone talk about vicarious evaluation and, and, or sorry, vicarious trauma uh, in evaluation okay. before. I don't know that. I'm sure those conversations are happening somewhere, but I don't think they're happening uh, in a big way. It's certainly not something I've ever come across in any sort of evaluator training or uh, anything that would prepare us for that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Same experience here, I think, around, uh, um, or definitely not same experience, but in terms of uh, definitely seeing vicarious trauma as a result of evaluation. And I think even going back to that episode with uh, Dr. Nora Murphy-Johnson about, uh, I think the quote I had was around like broken people and broken systems. I remember that was a difficult uh, project to be working through just to be able to seeing that what was happening to frontline workers and of course, then understanding why they were having these, these, these traumas because of what was happening to their clients. And then um, just the concern about, you know, or, or will my report be taken seriously? Will that actually lead to to some kind of change as a result of it? Or will it just find its way to the file drawer? Yeah, and I want to add two pieces to that, Brian. Mm -hmm. One is that just like journalists, we're paid to watch. Mm -hmm. 
And I think there's, there's something, um, I don't know if trauma, trauma is the word, but there's definitely something really painful about being asked as a human being to watch. Like we have to, we are trained to shut out our emotions so we can watch. And I think there are evaluators who have seen the span, right? Um, if you think about peace building projects and hunger projects, right? I mean, there's, there's an evaluator in every war term terms, right? Like we mm-hmm. like journalists, we're basically paid to watch and there's, there can be both humanity in that gaze. They, there's a lot of power in that gaze. There can also be lack of humanity, right? There can be an othering in the gaze. And so what's happening internally to us as human being while we take notes in our notebooks. I mean, I think that mm-hmm. I, I would love to see us question that more. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I think there's also something about, you know, again, like that we're trained to do that. Mm-hmm. It brings me back around to another thought, another thread that's kind of been through this conversation around, you know, we talked about, needing to have done, um, our own healing work. Um, and not, we've, we've talked about, you know, not, not having emotions kind of drive our decisions that because I'm feeling this right now, I should be doing this. Um, and I think we also talked about how sometimes we can, um, retreat into sort of our, our analytical mind. I feel like those are, those are sort of two sides of the same bad decision to be sort of a completely like, you know, I'm going to respond only to my emotions and to how I feel or, okay, emotions are dangerous and scary. I'm going to just completely detach from them and avoid them. And really the work is for us to bridge those two things together, to weave those two things together, to embrace our emotions, even like the ones that were like, I wish I wasn't having that feeling. Um, But embrace it and have it be part of us, but not have it rule us uh, and not, sort of trying to mm-hmm. retreat into this purely analytical or life of the mind or detached way of doing things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the, the, I think the difference between what you said, just to like bring an example from the leadership world and the evaluation world, right. Is when we embrace our emotions, but we don't let them drive, we're still making a decision based on what the ultimate, like, like what we're what's in alignment with what our ultimate values are, right? Um, when we suppress the feeling, what we're doing is the feeling is actually still driving. We're just pretending that it doesn't. And I see that in evaluation world and leadership world all the time. So if I'm really scared of something happening, and I intellectualize it, I will I can make a decision from that fear and just pretend to not be scared. Um, versus, you know what, I, yeah, I am scared of that. And maybe verbalizing it and saying to the, to the group or to the team, you know, this is my concern. And I don't know if people have other kinds of concerns. Can we just put all the concerns on the table and, and, and choose a direction from there? Like my concern is not the supreme concern. It's not that because I'm scared the whole, you know, the whole operation has to go in a different direction. And um, to give an evaluator example, you know, if you're scared, so I see this is also another area I work in a lot. My experience of uh, white folk is that one of 
are the aspects of white privilege and white culture is to be conflict averse. So if I'm in charge of doing a focus group and I'm scared of interacting, I'm scared of conflict, then if I'm doing a town hall meeting or a focus group, I'm not going to invite the people who I perceive to have opposite interests because I'm scared of conflict. And I can cover that up with all sorts of things. I can say, well, you know, I think that population would be really vulnerable and I don't really want to put them in the same room with people who have more power. <laughs> or I can say, you know, I think, I think those people may be really, really busy. And, it, you know, the program officer said it's really hard to get them here, so I'm just not going to try to get them. And actually what's driving is the fear of conflict. Because I know that I don't do well with conflict and that I'm not capable of moderating a discussion in which conflict comes to the surface versus, hey, I don't really, I see that those two groups have really opposite interests. Those two stakeholder groups have really opposite interests. And um, I'm not equipped to, to moderate a discussion with that intensity so we either hire someone who does consensus building work or we find ways to collect that data separately. So that's a difference between like having your emotions and not having them drive your work versus repressing your emotions and pretending to be rational. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Which is how I feel about the entire, should evaluators be objective, neutral, detached observers? Oh, <laughs> Mm. Yeah, it would be super <laughs> yeah. Post-positivist hangover, I think, uh, is a phrase I got introduced to in grad school. <laughs> Post-positivist hangover? Is that what yeah. you said, Brian? Mm -hmm. Nice! <laughs> I love that. Rita, it has been an absolute um, delight having you on the podcast. We are just very excited to to have heard more about your work. Is there anything that you would like to tell our listeners about that they should be um, looking out for? Um, well, just, I guess, on resources side, right? So I know you're going to post the links to uh, my two websites. I have two websites. One is uh, my author website where you can kind of sign up for the newsletter and find out more about the book when it comes out. Um, my other website and that's the drritawrites.com website. And then I have um, Firo Consulting, that's F-I-E-R-R-O, consultingllc.com, which is my consulting website, which is where I um, invest in organizations and companies. Um, I'm in the process of rebranding completely. <laughs> so there's a huge overhaul that's happening on the Firo Consulting LLC website. Uh, my launch date is latest June 30th. So I definitely invite you to kind of come back so you can see uh, the new hurrah, which has been taking like six months to build. So I'm really excited right now. What, this conversation may not be reflected so much on the website, um, but it will be soon. Um, and then if you just kind of subscribe, stay in touch on both platforms, then you can hear more. I have a blog. Um, I also... My writing team just started a medium magazine called Trauma Transformation, Everyday Conversations. So that's another way to kind of be in this conversation since we've talked a lot about trauma. And there are just a lot of new things that are coming, like new awesome things. And so I'm looking forward to it. And um, 
And I'm definitely at the place where I'm really ready to work with organizations that want to step up their game and that know that living by their values is super important. (laughs) So I'm looking forward to organizations that are bold and brave and really out to make a difference in the world. Um, I'm excited to connect. Okay. So, I mean, thank you both. This has been an amazing conversation. I love how podcasts and interviews like this always never go exactly the way I think they're going to go. They're always an exploration and it really depends on the depth and the, um, the depth and the intent of the people who call me in. So thank you, Brian and Carolyn, for uh, the depth that you bring to your practice and your presence and your self-reflection work. Um, I really appreciate being on the call. And I think the last thing I just wanted to mention, which I realize I had missed to say before, uh, is that this concept of like fractal social change and focusing on relationships and uh, really building from the inside in, like isn't something that I came up with, right? So this is the, based on the indigenous practices almost all around the world. Um, and the art of hosting practice, which I mentioned, actually also drawn, draws heavily on circle practice, which is also a, like a Native American practice, but I've also seen practice in Africa for council of elders. Um, so I just kind of wanted to name, I know that I can get a little heady and, and, and start sounding like it's all original and it's actually not like I'm deeply steeped in the wisdom of my ancestors. And there are a lot of indigenous cultures that have been, you know, operating in the chaos, chaos of the world and, and making meaning and moving beyond and thriving, not just surviving. Right. So there, mm-hmm. there's a lot of wisdom that this this conversation is standing in. So I want to just kind of mention that I'm standing on the shoulders of many elders and cultures. It's it's it didn't just come out of my head. That's it for this episode of Eval Cafe. Thank you to all our listeners. Please check out the rest of our episodes on Pinecast, iTunes, or Google Play, or by going to our website, evalcafe.wordpress.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at evalcafe. And if you want to drop us a line, you can find us at evalcafe.podcast at gmail.com. Musical credits go to Kevin McLeod at incompetech.com for Poppers and Prosecco, our intro theme, and Dispersion Relation, our outro, as well as to Tim at tabletopaudio.com for the lively cafe ambiance in our intro. 